From the Cairo Radio Newsroom in Seattle, I'm Dave Ross, and these are the Ross Files. We've talked to Ibram X. Kendi before. He is a New York Times bestselling author. He is the founding director of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University, writes for uh, The Atlantic, and he's coming to Town Hall on Saturday, September 14th. Your latest book is How to Be an Anti-Racist. I guess that shouldn't be too heavy a lift because uh, nobody wants to be a racist. So... uh, (laughs) Uh, tell me, tell no, me where your where your thinking is uh, at this point uh, in terms of racism, because you 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 talk about how in a high school debate contest, your whole your whole theory of what the the problem was with the black community was that it was uh, it was culture that needed to be changed, and now you're you feel very differently. Let's say, yeah, I mean, I grew up in the 1990s, and, and if there was ever a decade in particular where black youth most specifically, were being sort of demonized and denigrated um, by Americans of really all races. It it was the 1990s, and as a black youngster then, I, of course, heard those ideas and, and consumed those ideas and ended up uh, reproducing them and expressing them um, as if they were true, uh, when in fact uh, they were not. They were racist. But now you feel the problem is ingrained racism that is still holding a whole race of people back? Well, I mean, I think that it's not, I think it's actually across the board. In other words, you have Americans of of all races who look out at racial disparities and inequities in our society and who've been led to believe that the problem, the cause of those disparities is not racist policies, is not racist policymakers. But it's the inferiorities of those people. People believe that black people are twice as likely to be unemployed because black people are lazy, because black people are unqualified, because black people prefer wealth, welfare over work, even though there's no evidence to support that, only anecdotes, which are an evidence of, of group behavior. And, and so I think that so many Americans explain away inequity by saying what's wrong with a particular racial group without realizing that is expressing Um, racist ideas. And yet, since you were in high school, we have seen an explosion of different races of people in the media telling their stories, uh, running for public office. Is none of that working to, uh, to undo the old stereotypes? I think some of it is. I mean, I think that in many ways, in my work, I, I talk about and I really document how we have obviously had racial progress. And, and that's a, a measure and manifestation of that. And But we've also had racist progress. And so racist ideas have become more sophisticated over time. And, and I think that we have to account for sort of both, that both is happening simultaneously. And so there are certain ways in which Americans have, have come to see other Americans as equals. And there are other ways in which Americans still consider certain groups to be more dangerous, certain groups to be behaviorally deficient or even culturally deficient. So if we're talking about how to be an anti-racist, which is the the title of your book, I I take it it's not standing on a street corner and telling people not to be racist. It's got to go a little deeper than that. So (laughs) can you can you give us some real life examples? Sure. So I, I really try to speak broadly so that individuals can apply it 
apply it to their own lives. But but generally, being an anti-racist is first no longer denying the very real possibility that we have each been raised to be racist, that we have been led to believe that the problem, racial problem, our society is people instead of policy. And then accepting and admitting and potentially confessing some of the racist ideas we've expressed over the course of my life. How to be an anti-racist is largely my own confessional, largely me talking and confessing specifically the anti-black racist ideas that I had consumed and, and expressed over the course of my life. And so that's very important because we can't begin to be anti-racist or to begin to, to, to change if we don't even see necessarily a problem. And being anti-racist is essentially seeing the problem, obviously, as racist policy and power because we view the racial groups as, as equals. It's essentially supporting those organizations, those campaigns, those those leaders, those individuals who are challenging racist power and policy. It's literally being a part of this struggle to create an equitable America. So you're confessing that at one time you, a black man, were racist towards black people. Yeah. And, and so that, I think, will confuse a lot of people listening right now. Where did that come from? Well, it came from, I mean, for instance, an idea like black people are lazy. That's an idea that is spread, mass produced. And it's not, it, just because someone is black doesn't mean that they're not going to potentially consume and internalize that idea too. Um, and, and so we have to recognize that racist ideas circulate and affect all different types of minds, even the minds of the people that those ideas were targeting. So, I, you know, we talked about the speech I gave in high school. I, I, as a young black male in the 1990s, I was feared, like so many other young black males were feared, even though I wasn't a criminal. And, and instead of me challenging Americans' racist ideas that black, young black kids were super predators, instead I was condemning black youth for being the most feared in society, because I thought it was their fault, as, as opposed to the fault of others. And so why? Because I had been told that so much by so many people that there was something wrong with me that eventually I internalized that. Just like, I mean, if we grow up in a home with a parent who is constantly telling us that we're nothing and we're nobody, some people are going to internalize that and believe that they're nothing and nobody. Yeah, well, I get that, but at the same time you were being told this, you also had the benefit of living in the black community and knowing actual black people and being one yourself and knowing that they were not lazy. For example, I remember um, uh, my own parents were were brought up Catholic, but eventually they stopped going to church. And so, uh, but they wanted to raise us in the church, right? So I went to catechism and I was told in church, well, you know, you should attend Mass uh, every Sunday, and those who don't are bad people. And I thought about, wait a second, though. My parents don't attend Mass. They're not bad people. And so I I rejected what the church was telling me. So, I mean, what, why wouldn't your own experience trump what you were being told by others? Because of the way racist ideas operate in our society. The, the way they operate in our society is that when when a person sees a black person acting negatively— they generalize that negativity. They exaggerate that negativity. They don't just see 
one black person committing a crime. They see black people in general mm-hmm. committing a crime. Um, and, and so what that does is even when you have individual examples of black people who are not committing crime, and the vast majority of black people don't, um, that those examples, those experiences are essentially trumped by the negative experiences that we generalize. And with white people, we do the very opposite. And so when, when people see white people acting negatively, all they see is one individual acting negatively, typically. And, and so I think that is one of the central heartbreaks of racist ideas itself, that we don't allow individuals to be individuals. And if we did, then we would not so readily consume racist ideas. Mm. Well, I will tell you that um, when I look at uh, – I'm starting to develop a stereotype of white people, quite frankly – and I guess it's because of the the mass shootings and, of course, the the rise of some of this uh, these white supremacy groups. But uh, I mean, I can see, I don't know if it's equivalent to the way you were feeling about the black community. But the more I see the pictures of these people, I've developed a stereotype of who I think looks like a a white racist. I don't know what to do about it because that keeps getting uh, hammered home again and again. Um, I I am not tempted, though, to think that any of my friends are racist because they're white, because I know them, right? So uh, what, what's, a, what's a person to do? You're, you're always going to hold assumptions about people you don't know, aren't you? Shaped by various things, whether it's media or rumor or whatever. Well, yes, but no. In other words, like the assumptions and stereotypes that we have are not natural to the human mind. So like you said, it's it's really a function of media. It's a function of what we've been taught. But because it's not natural, we can change. We can thwart that. We can be different. We can say, you know what, let's treat individuals as individuals. I do think that there obviously is a major problem with white supremacist domestic terrorism right now. And you have people who imagine the sort of bad black guy and and the the good white guy sort of trope, and then they don't really see that white male who is essentially collecting arms as a potential terrorist. Mm. And so obviously we should do that. But we shouldn't do that because white men are terrorists. We should do that because that single white male, we see actually what they're saying about Latinx immigrants, what they're collecting in terms of their weaponry. And then we can we should see them and see the potential red flag. So, so what do you do to try and resist this temptation to tag uh, an entire race with the acts of one person? Do you are there you do mental exercises? I mean, when you feel a racist thought coming on, do you do you meditate? I mean, what do you do? You challenge it. And so, you, you, you know, you feel and you, you think a racist thought and um, you, you challenge it. You say, no, I'm not seeing, you know, if you if, you, if you're seeing, um, you know, a black an individual black person is, is, is being allowed. And then you say, oh, black people are loud. No, just that individual black person is loud. You know, we have yeah. to clarify the reality. We're only seeing one person. Right. And, and I think we so it's constantly sort of performing these mental exercises. I oftentimes talk about racist ideas as almost like an addiction. And so anybody who's overcoming an addiction, you literally have to uh, challenge yourself 
and be very self-reflective on a regular basis. It, you can't just wake up one day and say, oh, I'm no longer, you know, doing um, that thing I'm addicted to. No, it's a constant and a regular process, just like it's a constant and regular process being an anti-racist. And yet a lot of people don't really feel comfortable doing that. Is is there a reason why uh, more people don't want to take the time to ask themselves uh, after every interaction, was I thinking racist thoughts? I mean, obviously, it's much harder to be an anti-racist than it is to be a racist. Um, and, and, you know, racist ideas are typically ideas that are very simple. They're in our face. In other words, understanding the problems as people and we see people acting negatively around us. It's easy for us to sort of see those negativities and say, yeah, that is the real problem. Uh, it's much harder to understand problems in terms of policies and people in positions of power who are much more distant from us. We don't see and experience the policies and certainly relate to those to those policymakers. So it's much easier to just blame the people. But but in blaming the people, we are essentially not living in reality in, in not recognizing the problem is policies, we're allowing the effects of those policies to continue on. And, and those effects of those policies, particularly in our time, is, is essentially, you know, mass shootings, is essentially not moving more strongly against climate change, is essentially voter suppression and people, uh, politicians being able to choose the voters as opposed to the other round. These are the effects, right? And it's and it's obviously harmful for people of color, but it's actually harmful for the majority of white people, too. Here's a conundrum I faced. I got a letter from a listener. We'd done the story about, the, of course, the mass shooting in Texas, seven people killed. Listener points out, well, Dave, did you know over the, over the Labor Day weekend, uh, seven people in South Chicago were killed because of gunfire? Why doesn't the media cover that? Was he right? So I think yes and no. In, in other words... The media certainly has covered Chicago, which is why I think we are even talking about this. And and any time, for instance, a person is subjected to a homicide, that's typically a news story. What's not a news story, though, is when somebody dies of cancer. What's not a news story is when somebody dies of heart disease. And there's a far, and when we look at the top 10 causes of death, they're typically unintentional injuries like drunk driving, diseases, and suicides. Suicides in particular, you have an epidemic of white male suicides at the level of black male homicides currently in this country. But every time a white male commits suicide in a state that doesn't have gun laws, gun control laws, that's not actually news in the way when a black male is subject to a homicide, it is. Mm -hmm. And, And so I actually think, if anything, we should certainly be covering covering mass shootings, but we should be covering, you know, people who are dying as a result of homicide and suicide and most especially the leading causes of death in our country, which are diseases, which then takes us to having more continuously a serious discussion about our healthcare system. Whereas the way we're covering it now, you feel, just ends up perpetuating racial stereotypes. Yes, because cancer is one of the leading causes of death in this country. But instead of me fearing cancer and pushing policymakers to change policies that will allow for more research for, for, for cancer, that would allow for better cancer care, instead, I'm most concerned about homicide. I'm most concerned about Muslim terrorists. 
I'm most concerned about so-called Latinx immigrants who are gang members, even though that's not most likely to kill me. And so actually, this is what I'm talking about. Like, our racist ideas prevent us from actually seeing the true source of what is harming us or what can kill us. That's a good point. You're going to be at Town Hall on Saturday, September 14th, 730. Ibram X. Kendi, the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist. Ibram, thanks very much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on the show. Remember that when there's a longer version of the interviews on Seattle's Morning News, you can usually find it right here in the original form, unconstrained by the limitations of a live broadcast. And you can subscribe so that when someone says, did you hear what was on Seattle's Morning News, you can say, not only that, I heard the part that wasn't on Seattle's Morning News. So my advice is to subscribe. And then when we talk to an author, a politician, an entrepreneur, an artist, a scientist, a teacher, a journalist, a celebrity, you'll hear every word. I'm Dave Ross. Thanks for tuning in.